Hello and welcome to Downs Your Way. I'm Colin Speller and today's guest in the next in the Back to the Start series is Aidan Goldstraw. Aidan. Hello, Hello Colin. How are you? I'm very well thank you and this is a first for Downs Your Way because we are doing this by Zoom. We are socially and physically distanced. Uh, we're sitting here both looking like the sort of virtual version of Smashy and Nicey in our respective, I, I inverted commas in the air, studios. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should take a screenshot, Aidan, of the, uh, as you were just saying just now, the, the lockdown haircut brackets lack of. Yes, absolutely. Um, as I was telling Colin just before we came on air, we had our two Westies clipped a couple of weeks ago and I was very tempted to get into the van with them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I won't. I won't accuse you of looking like Boris Johnson. That would be too deep an insult. But uh, in, in it, hair-wise, at least there is some resemblance. <laughs> anyway, Aidan, welcome to the, to the podcast. And as I was saying to you earlier, the, the the basis of these is to sort of go through how you got into music and how you got into working with Rebecca. But let's go right back to the beginning. Where where and when did life start for Aidan? Well, I was born in Burslem in the Potteries, but in fact, our family never actually lived there. Uh, we lived on the outskirts of the Potteries at the time, and my dad was a sales rep, so we moved all around the country really during my childhood. Uh, we lived in York for a while, and then we lived in Scotland for quite a few years until we moved back down to Staffordshire when I was about eight years old. And how did you get into music? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's always been an innate part of me. Um, my mum was a very good pianist and she had a grand piano. And while she was practicing, I used to play when I was a toddler beneath the grand piano as a sort of a den, I guess. And I started singing the things that she was playing. I'm told that I used to sing bits of bark while I was being pushed along the street in my pushchair. <laughs> and then one day, uh, probably when I was about just about nudging five years old, I climbed on the piano stool and demanded lessons. And basically I've been there ever since. And did you do a sort of formal musical education in the sense of doing your grade exams and, and that sort of thing? Yes, although that actually didn't come until a little bit later. The, my, my first two teachers weren't the sort who believed in exams very much, although I, I learned the, the normal classical repertoire. Um, but I only really started doing the great exams when I was uh, when we moved back down here, really, and I had my next teacher, and that's when I started doing the exams. But I was always one of those peculiar children, very rare peculiar children, who had to be told that that's enough practice for now, rather than have you done your practice. <laughs> yeah, I, I've mentioned this on here before. I actually started down the same road and got to about grade three, and uh, I, I think lost interest because I was very much one of those children who had to be told to do their practice <laughs> so it's uh, it, I think that probably is the natural separation of those who really have got got it and those that haven't <laughs> I, I suspect you know around that whole issue of whether you want to be doing it or not I think it's it's one of those things that you you sort of have in in your genes uh, I, I really do believe that um, you know I think musicians, they, they've always got music running through their head, uh, whether they're doing that or whether they're doing something else. I, I can be sitting at the TV watching something and my fingers will be moving on the, the, the uh, arms of the armchair. And my wife will say to me, 
what's that one now then? And I'll look down and say, no idea. It's all like a mus musician's Tourette's. And, um, but I, you know, I think as I think it's something totally genetic. My brother, uh, Lyndon was totally tone deaf by, by comparison. Really? And my dad wasn't, wasn't really musical either. So it's, and I think he also skips sometimes, you know, um, uh, and one of Lyndon's children is, is, is quite musical. And one of their, you know, my great, great nephews, uh, great nieces musical as well. But uh, it really does tend to skip, I think. Having that sort of fairly classical education, when did you start performing music? Um, yeah, interesting. I, I suppose I was always being sort of dragged out to play this, all the party pieces, mini Mozart type thing for my mother's mother and father's friends. Um, I remember being uh, bought an organ, uh, one of the home, these home organs, when I was, I think, about 11. And within about a two months of having that, I was roped in to play for a New Year's Eve party at some local hockey club. And the guy who was organizing it, who was a local grocer, actually had to collect this huge cabinet home organ and put it on the back of his lorry so that he could um, <laughs> take me to, to the hockey club to play, play for New Year's Eve. And uh, I, I made enough to buy an electric guitar. <laughs> Excellent. I was going to go on to say, do, do you play other instruments or how did, you, did you learn other instruments as a child? Mostly guitar. Um, I have to say that my guitar playing is entirely rudimentary and I don't think I've picked one up for probably about a dozen years now. Um, I tried a few wind instruments, flute and French horn, uh, but wind instruments don't, didn't seem to be my thing. In retrospect, I think I would have preferred to probably attempt another string instrument, maybe the violin or cello. The trouble with, with both of those, as you're probably aware, is that it's a long time before you sound even bearable, let alone good. Uh, tell me about it. I went to a very musical school and um, I uh, I can remember I shudder at the thought of the sort of, you know, early, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old violinists caterwauling their way through some something as a, you know, at the start of morning assembly. It was it was horrific at times, to be honest. I mean, a lot of them went on to be very, very good players indeed. But those, they, you know, we all we all suffered those early attempts. The impression I'm getting is you're going down a, a fairly sort of classical road, if I, in inverted commas again. Uh, when did you get into more contemporary music? Was that right from the off, in, or, or did you get into it later on? I've always had a, a tremendously Catholic with a small c um, attitude to music, I, uh, and, and I've always been a vor voracious consumer of music of all types. So, you know, I was listening to, 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 to pop when I, when I was a kid, um, I was bothering people to buy me records. Um, I'm now going to give my game, <laughs> give my age away a little bit here by saying that there were things like the Tremolos and the Hollies. Um, but actually, those were bought for me when I was really quite young. Hmm. And if you compared my record collections with uh, some of my contemporaries a bit later on, my my collection went way. You know, my knowledge of music went much further back than that so I think I've always been this this sponge really 
um, just just sucking up everything and I think I could I, I've always liked music of all sorts and you know I can admire and get something from anything that is done well uh, the exception used to be country and western which I couldn't stand but more recently I've become a little bit more tolerant <laughs> yes I love that line from the Blues Brothers where they go to that bar and he says what sort of music do you have here and she says we have both types country and western <laughs> <laughs> yeah great movie <laughs> When did you get into playing for what, uh, you know, we might describe in modern terms as a band of the type that you, you know, like Rebecca's type, sort of modern beat combo, as it were? Yeah, well, my music teacher, uh, my piano teacher, who I, I uh, had when I came back down to Staffordshire, a guy called Alan Hayes, who I'm still very good friends with, he exposed me to a, a lot of um, prog rock. Uh, he was, you know, totally into that. And because of, you know the the way that prog rock sometimes bridges that gap between classical and rock music, it was a very natural way to um, uh, to, to to do it. And uh, so he would you know play me something like uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and then he would play me the original Bartok or whatever they'd taken the the thing from. Um, so I started sort of uh, getting into. Um, the, the, sort of the, the sort of the rockier end of things there. Um, I suppose my first band was a, was a school one, inevitably. We had um, a great uh, teacher called Steve Mee, who was the RE teacher, but he was your typical 1970s um, trend, trendy school teacher with the, you know, the, the suede jackets and the, uh, the leather patches and the long hair and everything. But he played guitar, and he he put we put together this this band, which we absolutely horrified uh, most of the school with. Uh, but they thought it was great, and we thought it was great at the time. Um, but I didn't really start playing in bands until I went to university. Uh, I was at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, and um, I started playing in a few bands there, uh, mostly rather up ourselves jazz funk type bands. Um, we, 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 we liked, you know, uh, Weather Report and Pat Metheny and things like that. We, we, we thought were great. Uh, actually, we, I still do think those things are great, but we, we, we sort of worshipped them rather than uh, appreciated them, I think, at the time. And uh, our efforts to replicate what we were hearing were, were by no means uh, close to uh, anything remarkable. So where did it go from there? So university bands to to what? Well, it went to a, a rather barren period. Um, I would say I, I studied music there, obviously, uh, and it was always uh, thought that I would pursue a career in music. Um, but I actually majored in composition while I was at university, and I got out of university to find that there wasn't much call for composers. Surprise, surprise, and. I floated around uh, trying to get a job at various places. This was during the Thatcher years, so unemployment was pretty rife. And most people, I guess, got out of university and probably spent about a year or so out of work, as I did. And eventually, I saw an advert in the local newspaper looking for cub reporters, for training reporters. And I'd always enjoyed writing as well, so... Um, my fiance at the time said, who became my first wife, why don't you, you know, why don't you try for that? So I did, and then got one of the two posts. Uh, 
Uh, and that was how I fell into journalism for about three decades. And during that time, um, for various reasons, uh, I won't really go into here, but I, I didn't do much music at all. Mm. And, you know, there wasn't sort of time for, you know, um, playing out, it was thought of playing out professionally, really. So it all went on hold for probably about, as I say, probably the best part of uh, 20 years. And then um, came 2005, I believe it was. And that was the year of what I called the three big scary things. Um, the first of which was that I got divorced. Um, my first wife and I just you know, were drifting apart, really. And um, one of those things, you marry young and you're, 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 your lives tend to go in different directions. Um, we're still very good friends, I have to say, so there's no acrimony about it. But I also uh, met back up with uh, Vicky, who I'd known since primary school. We, we, we used to walk down to school together in the village where we lived in Staffordshire. We were never boyfriend and girlfriend, just mates. And uh, something just clicked and that was it. We, 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 we made plans to get married. And uh, probably about two, yeah, about two months before uh, the wedding, we'd been out for uh, a drive in the country with a friend. And for once, Vicky was sitting behind me in the car rather than next to me. And she came out of the car and said, how long have you had that lump behind your ear? So enter the second big scary thing. It turned out I'd got salivary gland cancer. Good Lord. And um, after much poking about and being referred to specialists here, there and everywhere who kept saying, oh, I'm sure it's benign, uh, they, they eventually took the tumour out and said, uh, actually, no, it wasn't benign. And I had to have radiotherapy and various things. So that was the second big scary thing. I'm glad to say I've been free of that for many, many years now, and they don't want to see me again. So I'm presuming all is well. Excellent. And uh, then the, the third big scary thing was that um, we had a new editor come and work on the paper where I was at that time. I was, by that time, I was heading up the newspaper's internet operations. Uh, we'd started the website as a sort of two-man operation and built it up into a whole department. And uh, we had a change of editor and the guy was frankly an absolute psychopath who hated me and hated most people. And uh, then they, they suddenly had a round of redundancies being offered. And uh, I turned to Vicky and said, you know what, I'm, I'm out of here. I, I don't want to do something else. So I went in and told him that I was resigning and I was going to go freelance and I was going to be a professional musician as well. Um, by that time, I'd started doing a few solo piano gigs, mostly for weddings. I put a little website up, and uh, I remember the first, <laughs> the first booking that came in was probably about four days after I put the website up. And it was a guy from American Express uh, Gold Card Concierge Service. And he said, I have a stockbroker near uh, Manchester who wants uh, a pianist for their Christmas party. This was December, as you might guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you go and do it? I said, yes, that's fine. And 
I, I said, do I need to take a, a piano with me? He said, no, uh, he's got a grand piano. I thought, okay. Uh, so I rolled up at this place. Uh, it was a place called Mir, um, just just sort of um, just near the A A56. And um, this guy was a very weirdest stockbroker I've ever come across. He was like the Hugh Fernley witting stall of stockbrokers, I think. And he showed me to this lovely grand piano. I said, "Oh, do you play yourself?" He said, "No, I, I've uh, I bought it with the intention of thinking I might learn to play, but never did." I thought, "Okay, that's nice for you." I sat down at this Joanna, beautiful, beautiful instrument. I went up and down the keyboard and I looked at him and said, how long is it since you had it tuned? And he said, oh, do they need tuning? <laughs> so I played for his, his Christmas dinner party. There was only about eight people there. And uh, this beautiful instrument, but it sounded like Chaz and Dave all night. <laughs> no matter what I played, it sounded like Chaz and Dave. <laughs> and uh, it didn't really matter because by... Uh, about an hour in, they were all so absolutely off their heads on the alcohol <laughs> that it didn't really matter. And uh, as, I, as I was preparing to leave, this woman came up to me and said, uh, thank you so much for your play. It's not everybody who can play and sing at the same time like that. I said, oh, thank you. I said, actually, I wasn't singing tonight. I was just playing. <laughs> I was thinking, no, just shut up, Aiden. Take the money. <laughs> Go. So that was my first gig. And um, so I did a huge amount of um, solo piano work at that point. Uh, lots of weddings. So, and at big venues as well, you know, I've been lucky enough to play at things like the Dorchester, the Savoy, Blenheim Palace, um, a couple of times at Blenheim Palace. And, um, you know, so I, I, I've probably played at more people's weddings than you've had hot dinners. <laughs> and then... Um, we got to a point, I can't remember, when was, the, when was the crash? About 2008, was it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that happened, and, and the number of bookings started to go mm. uh, down steadily. And I thought, well, I've got to you know, do something else here. I, I don't want to stop playing. And a good friend of mine, Scott Ralph, who's very well known as a songwriter and producer, um, who I happen to know through the church in Newcastle on the Line, where I'm director of music. Scott was a uh, attendee there at the time, and he was in the in the, the church band with me. And Scott said, "Well, why don't you do some um, you know do some gigs with me?" So we we started doing a few pub gigs, and then we're coming to the point where we're we're getting to the point now where the um, the gold straw downs worlds collide because um, at one point I was then recruited into a band which was uh, now called the Chris Bevington Organization, uh, now, which was then called Chris Bevington and Friends initially. And it was the early incarnation of that band was rather more rotational. It was whoever was available, really. So the keys, although the keys uh, position now is, is filled uh, more permanently, at uh, the time it was being rotated between myself and... Uh, George Glover from Climax Blues Band. And I think I'm right in saying that we first bumped into each other, uh, you, Rebecca, and I, at a uh, gig at the Robin. Yes, I remember where that. We, yeah. Where, we, where, we, where we were sort of double-heading, I think. Yes, yeah. And uh, so I, I got chatting to Rick Benton, uh, Rebecca's keys player at the time, and uh, as you do, and because uh, keyboard players always like to sort of shoot the breeze and uh, talk about keyboards because nobody else will talk about keyboards with them. 
and uh, so so we got talking and we, we got friendly and I had a chat with Rebecca as well and uh, we all got along very well and, um, and then somewhere down the line uh, I got the call to uh, actually come do some gigs with you guys. Massive amount to sort of un unpack in that story. Um, I, uh, your your career as a, a journalist, I mean, that would be worth several podcasts on its own, I'm sure, as as I know from a little bit of personal experience, but also a, a very good friend who um, cut his teeth as a journalist on local newspapers, uh, again, through that sort of difficult period of, of change and consolidation and and you know which almost certainly led to the changes that you made um it's a very interesting world isn't it in <laughs> uh featured particularly in that ricky gervais afterlife series most recently i don't know whether you've seen that but that's centered on a character who works for a, a local local paper no i haven't i must i must check that out um regional journalism is one of those things which uh the face of it has has changed totally over the last uh few years and, and to the point that really it almost doesn't exist which is which is really um a big shame when i i my first big paper was the express and star in wolverhampton and i went there as initially as a, a sub-editor which are, those are the people for people who don't know those sub-editors are people who read through the copy, correct it, rewrite it, trim it for length, design the page layouts, write the headlines, things like that. Uh, you're, you're totally involved in the production side. And when I joined the Express and Star, I think we were doing a combined, with the Shropshire Star, we were doing a combined uh, daily circulation of close to a quarter of a million. Blimey. Quarter of a million, and we were doing, I think, I'm right in saying, 12 editions a day at the, of the Express and Star. So you had a, it, it taught me to be very quick <laughs> because you had, you had deadlines constantly coming up on pages throughout the day. It was just totally relentless. So you, you, you either sank or swam with it. Um, but it taught me to be very quick. And when I moved into going freelance and uh, after I resigned from the paper, uh, in 2005 I did a few freelance shifts um, at places like the Sentinel and Stoke and um, they were always amazed at just how quick I was uh, in fact somebody called, gave me the name the copy hoover because <laughs> <laughs> you could just, <laughs> somebody say oh, I've got this page here so I'll give it to the copy hoover um, but that's yeah you just learn to be quick and accurate and and, and that, that that's the skill you learn so um, you know, I can turn copy around very, very quickly, and it's you know still one of those skills I still have. But you know the 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 you know the commitment to um, covering uh, the local scene now in newspapers is 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 paper thin. It's almost not there anymore, and I fear that really probably another decade we may see most of the, these newspapers close altogether because. I don't see how they can you know, survive, really. No, it's 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 sad in many ways, but I suppose it's an inevitable product of a byproduct of the growth of the internet, really, isn't it? And the availability of information, um, and also the, the the sort of cost cost base. I, I mean, I lived in some 
wild and woolly places where the the local newspaper you know back in the day was 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 everything my my favorite local newspaper was the Rutland and Stamford Mercury which claimed to be Britain's oldest newspaper and its stock in trade was to find a local angle for almost anything and one of its best ever headlines there was a major um, national news story of a murder case in Luton and it carried the headline one week which said murdered Luton woman lived next door to ex Stanford man ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes the relentless search for the local angle it worked really hey. search for the local angle and my other favorite story from local news is, is from my friend who worked in a couple of papers one in Derbyshire and one in Northamptonshire he worked for an editor whose favorite line was oh that's far too good to check <laughs> you better run with that lad that's far too good to check um so are you still involved in in journalism today yes um on a rather different level what i've been doing for the last um 15 years really has been largely focused on specialized trade magazines the sort of thing that you uh, see at the end of Have I Got News For You, basically. <laughs> Although um, I haven't got as low as roundabout news or anything like that yet. Um, I, I spent um, probably the best part of, well, more than a decade um, editing a magazine called Promotional Product Distri Distributor. Try saying that with your teeth in. And um, that was aimed at uh, the, the promotional industry, you know, the people who put logos on things and um, stress relievers and pencils and, you know, everything, everything, everything you can brand, basically. Banned merchandise. Yeah, banned <laughs> merchandise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I, from, from that, I actually got a referral to do another magazine, which I'm still involved with, uh, which is Openings. And Openings is the trade journal of the British Blinds and Shutters Association. Again, I'm another glad one. glad you added that qualification after opening with that title. If you're part of yes. The <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've been doing that for, um, must be on about the sixth six or seventh year of doing that one. And that's the one I, I still do. Uh, I do a bit of PR for people, writing copy for them and stuff like that. Uh, I do a few websites because the 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 internet. Yeah, you were talking about the internet being the downfall of local journalism. Well, I would have to put my hand up to being uh, complicit in that in a way because I was a an early adopter of the internet uh, in the days where you paid uh, somebody called Demon Internet ten pounds a month and they would give you this DOS program, which you would uh, dial up with. And it would go, <laughs> and it would download your email, and then you would disconnect. You would read your email, you would write all your replies, and then you would up, yeah. connect up again and upload it all. Yeah. And uh, you could um, fire up, I remember, um, a program called Mosaic, which was the first web browser. And there were about 10 websites, and they were all, all got this dull gray background, and uh, they were all sort of very heavily academic. Uh, so you didn't bother after you'd had a look at it once. And uh, so this was sort of known at work, I guess. And somebody said, oh, he knows something about the internet. And they were saying, well, we should do a website. So I was confined into this office. But 
we, 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 we built up, you know, from the ground up as we built expressandstar.com as it became um, from you know, ground zero up to around about 7 million page views a month, something like that. And that was really the time when it was a classic case of newspapers missing the boat because of their fetish about print, really. Mm -hmm. had, they, had they seen the way things were, were, were going, uh, they could have easily um, called it the market at that point in such things as homes, um, cars, and stuff like that, which they already had you know, the market in anyway. Um, and they didn't. Mm. Um, largely because we had, you know, our mom, we had a, a managing director who memorably once said to me, oh, the internet, it's, it's like CB radio. It'll all be over in six months. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's on the speaking circuit uh, <laughs> anymore. But uh, yeah, that that was that was you know what you came what you came up against. You came up against people who had always been on the print side and felt very territorial, and so they wanted to um, you know, minimize your impact. Mm. But what they were actually doing was writing their own death notice. Really, yeah, it's very sad. So what what are you doing musically these days apart from appearing with Rebecca? Yeah, well, um, when lockdown isn't happening. Yes, I'm oh, sorry. I should have said in, <laughs> in normal circumstances. What would you? Uh, do? I'm I'm still playing the occasional gig with with Scott Ralph because he's he's barmy and so am I, and we we kind of like each other's sort of um, way of doing things. Uh, gigs with Scott are, are, are very unpredictable. He'll just suddenly announce something. He might give you the key if you're lucky, and away you go. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the main focus of my musical activity in the, the past year or so has been the formation of a band called Both Sides Now, and we play the music of Joni Mitchell. I've been a huge fan of Joni Mitchell ever since uh, I was at university, really. Uh, that really was the soundtrack to my university years. And I've always had this idea that I really wanted to form a, a band, not quite a tribute band, because we, we, we don't sort of try to aim, you know, totally ape the arrangements and note for note and things like that. Um, but it's one of those things I've always really wanted to do. And then about four years earlier, I went into a pub and somebody was playing a jazz set there and they had a singer at the front called Sarah Miller. Uh, Sarah, I had been aware of um, for some time as sort of friends of friends, but we never actually meet. Uh, we'd ever, never actually met. And I took her to a dark corner of the pub and propositioned her, really. <laughs> uh, as Sarah will tell you, I said, I don't know if you fancy this, but I always wanted to do a Joni Mitchell tribute. And she said, yes, yeah, so have I, so have I. And that was, the, that was the seed of that idea. And it took... A while for us to bring it to fruition. I think it's one of those things we talked about for about a year and then we did a couple of gigs as a duo and then realized that if we really wanted to take it to the next level we were going to have to recruit a band and that's when you start looking quite hard and long at who you can recruit because uh, if you think of the caliber of musicians that Joni Mitchell had working with her uh, you, you have to have some incredibly good musicians to 
even get close to what they were doing. Uh, if you think of just the, the bass player's position, for example, um, you've got to have Jaco Pastorius. <laughs> mm. So um, it took us a while to recruit the right people, but we, 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 we were lucky enough to get some really good players to the point where, you know, I'm the total duffer in the band, really. Um, you know, people start up playing and I'm sort of, oh, really? You can do that? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we, we've been touring that show around uh, regional theatres for about a year and a bit, and we're due to uh, really push in with our, you know, with our 2020 plans, when all the wheels fell off, as, uh, mm. as um, I'm sure you're, you're all too familiar, mm. familiar with, Colin. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's well, it's a very sad situation. But assuming that we do get back to something like normal, like you'll be striking ahead with that again, will you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things we we've really enjoyed putting it together. Every time we we come together and play, we we have just such tremendous fun. And as I say, I'm I'm just such a, so in awe of the, the the tremendous musicians we have with us uh, that you know it, it's one of those things that I can't not continue with really. So we have um, a gig plan for October, but I, I doubt to be honest whether that's going to go ahead. Um, if I'm realistic, I don't expect us to be back on the road until 2021. No, I think that's a fair assessment. Oh, we were talking to somebody the other day who said that in terms of promoting gigs his insurer has told him he will not get insurance cover until 2021 so that's uh you know quite a salutary statement really um and i during the lockdown period though you've also been doing some online stuff tell us a little bit about that yeah well as i say that was, felt a bit like going back to my roots because it's it's been a while since i've done a few solo piano gigs really uh, i have done the odd wedding but but since i started working uh, on with Scott and with Chris and then with both sides now it's not something I've pursued as aggressively I suppose because it's still quite a saturated market and um, you can it can be a stressful uh, thing to work on the wedding circuit because uh, you have a very demanding bride shall we say uh, for one thing and uh, you know as I say it's a very competitive market so I've done a few things like that, but but not a huge amount. Um, so it's been some time since I did some solo piano gigs. So I thought, well, perhaps I could do something along those lines, just to sort of you know, entertain people and 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 brighten up brighten up a, a dull evening. And very fortuitously, I at the end of last year, I bought a huge amount of video gear, with the idea of making promotional stuff both for myself and for both sides now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera and learned how to use it and so uh, i was very quick to be able to get up a, a proper live streaming setup here you can probably see the camera mm. tripod behind me and uh, every thursday night at uh, 7 30 on facebook i've been doing a an hour of, of tunes just just solo solo piano tunes playing everything from and um, this super tramp to uh who else anybody really prince Alicia Keys, Pink Floyd, <laughs> uh, they've been getting piano renditions of everything. So those have proven quite popular. It's sort of like a, uh, a shared cocktail hour almost. You know, that people, people get the glass of wine and, yeah, uh, yeah. and just gather around and put me on the television. So 
Um, and, and is that just on Facebook? Or do, you, do you do it on YouTube as well? Well, I was doing uh, Sunday nights on YouTube originally. I was doing Thursday nights on Facebook, Sunday nights on YouTube, on YouTube. But the YouTube one didn't have that much of a following for some reason. Mm. It, was, it, it seemed to divide people. Maybe it wasn't the right time of the day. I don't know, or the right time of the week. Um, so what I have been doing recently, I've, I've, I've done the Thursday night show live on Facebook and then been uploading the live stream for people to enjoy afterwards onto the YouTube channel. Well, I'll put a link to your YouTube channel uh, on the uh, notes below the podcast. Aidan, that, that's been superb. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, no problem. I, I'm thoroughly enjoyed that chat and... Uh, we look forward to a return to normal times and to seeing you again on stage with Rebecca. Who knows when that will be? As you, I think we both agree, you're probably looking for, um, you know, 2021. Uh, when in 2021 is a, a matter probably for a podcast in, it, in its own right. But uh, whenever it is, we very much look forward to it. Looking forward to seeing you again soon. And thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. No problem, Colin. I think we just need to get the crystal ball out, don't we? But it's always a, always a great pleasure to play with, with, with you guys and to, to meet you again and to, uh, to get on stage with you. I always have tremendous fun working with Rebecca and I look forward to doing so in the future. Second that very much. Thanks, Aidan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Downs Your Way. As usual, there is a merchandise discount code for use in our online shop. If you put the word GOLD, all in capitals, G-O-L-D, in at the appropriate point in the checkout process at www.rebeccadowns.com forward slash shop, you will receive a 10% discount on all items purchased. Thank you for listening and we look forward to being with you again soon.